The Real Investment Show. Right now, the Democrats trying to blame the Republicans for holding up, you know, pushing the economy into a tragic meltdown. We're going to have this massive debt default, etc. As I said, there's the Democrats can do all this by themselves. They don't need any help or support from the Republicans. So, you know, pass your bill, pass the continued resolution, pass your debt ceiling, pass your three and a half trillion dollar spending bill and go on with life, right? I mean, there's there's nothing to uh, be concerned here. You've got the votes to do it. Go ahead and do it. Or the, the issue is, is maybe they don't have the votes to do it. And this is the problem. And again, as we talked about a second ago, there are a lot of moderate Democrats and there's a lot of states. Uh, Georgia is a good example, um, which normally votes Republican and, and in, in the last election elected uh, Democrat senators as, as well as voted for Biden. So, you know, we see traditionally you know, Republican states or red states actually turning a little bit blue or purple, et cetera, but they're on the margin. So they're moderate and they can certainly swing back the other direction. And the Democrats are aware of this and the midterms are coming up and, and this is going to be important for them because they need to make sure they hold on to the House and the Senate. And it's a very slim margin in, in, both, in both houses. So the midterms mean a lot in terms of progressing the Biden social agenda over the course of the next four years. And potentially if there's a if he gets reelected, which seems um, tenuous at this point, that, you know, they're going to really need a lot of support here. So they, they realize there's a real threat here, which is why there's a big push to try to get all this spending done as soon as possible, because after the midterms, very high probability you won't be able to do any more of this. And there's a couple of there, there's a couple of you know things behind that, of course. But you know the big issue right now, of course, is in 72 hours the government will shut down. Dun. This is now this is where we need bump music. Dun dun dun. You know, and you know all of a sudden bring out the dead. Um, you know the the terrible tragedy of the government shutdown is coming, and you know we've been through this before, and. You know, last time we had a government shutdown, we had to we had to temporarily furlough nine hundred thousand workers. Now, these workers are classified as non-essential. This is something we should all think a lot about in terms of government. If you have almost a million non-essential workers, if I have a business, right? I have a business. Every worker in our business is absolutely critical essential. We can't live without them. If we have a non-essential worker, they typically don't last very long (laughs) because you got to pay for them, right? And when you have to pay for them out of your corporate profits, well, you know, Non-essential versus essential becomes a very big thing. But when it comes to government, since this is all just taxpayer money, we can just hire a lot of people and, hey, don't worry about it. And this is why we have a lot of people in government that don't do anything. But they're non-essential. So we lay them off. They're temporarily furloughed, which means they're still getting paid. Now, they may not get paid today, but as soon as they go back to work, they get all their back money plus their, their current income. The other thing that the government shut down that they'll tell you is, is like, oh my gosh, senior citizens aren't going to get Social Security. That's not true. And a government shutdown, mandatory spending still gets made. Military gets paid, Social Security gets paid, etc. And look, that's that's all. You might as well enjoy Social Security. It's all going bankrupt in 2034, apparently, according to the Social Security Board of Trustees. 
You got 13 years to enjoy it, so enjoy it while you got it. We'll talk about that one later. Um... <laughs> uh, but this is, we go through this, right? We've been through, I, I don't know, uh, during the Obama administration, we went through this virtually, I think, every other year. We talked about, uh, had to fight a government shutdown. We had to pass a continuing resolution. And, and just, just to remind you youngsters out there, if you happen to have forgotten, prior to 2008, we had this thing called a budget that we passed. And we would pass a budget every year that would be voted on by the House and the Senate and approved by the president. And that was what we spent. Beginning when Obama took office, we decided, why on earth would we use a budget when we can just do a continuing resolution? Now, what is a continuing resolution versus a budget? A budget is actually a budgetary guideline that says, this is how much money we're going to spend, and this we're going to spend it on all these projects, right? Whatever we're going to do. Here's the budget. And we'd lay that out. Now, theoretically, in the budget, we were supposed to be going through there and saying, hey, this department, you know, needs less money, so we're going to take some money away from there. And, and, you know, we're spending too much, so let's cut back spending in some of these other areas and, you know, try to get the government back to maybe, possibly, running a small surplus. I know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird concept to actually have a surplus in government. But, hey, you know, something. But see, that's too much trouble. The beautiful thing about a continuing resolution is, is if you spend a trillion dollars last year, all a continuing resolution says is you get another trillion dollars to spend this year plus 8% because spending went up 8%. Somehow, magically, it cost 8% more this year to run the government than it did last year. Now, I don't know where you come up with 8%. I mean... You know, inflation's not 8%, so it doesn't didn't cost 8% more to run the government. But, you know, we got everybody raises and all that kinds of stuff, right? So every year, we pass a continuing resolution. It's just last year spending plus 8%. We've been doing this now since 2008. Do some simple math. What's 8% times 12 years? That's how much more your spending is just based on the continuing resolution. not to mention all the other spending that you want to do. And this is why when we pass these continuing resolutions, it only funds the government basically for about six, seven months. And we run through that money and we have to do another continuing resolution later to fund the government through the next, you know, next cycle. But this is the, the, this is the government largesse that's been going on now for over 12 years. And the lack of having any real kind of fiscal responsibility of any, in any, consequence in, in Washington. But we come up every every other couple of years, we come up with this whole thing. It's like, oh my gosh, we got to shut down the government. We got to raise the debt ceiling. If we don't, we're all going to default. No, we're not going to default. There's a big difference between a default and a technical default. A technical default is yes, we if our interest payment on our treasury is treasuries, plural, are due September 30th. And we don't make the interest payment on September the 30th. Yes, we are in technical default. Have we ever been in a technical default in the U.S. before? As I said in the first segment, yes, we have. Several times. The U.S. is not immune to defaulting on their debt. Why does nobody worry about a technical default? Because everybody knows that as soon as we pass whatever we're going to do, whatever song and dance we're going to do to pass the debt ceiling and pass a continuing resolution or pass a budget or whatever it is, 
first thing that happens is the interest payments get made. Mandatory spending. It's an important concept to understand in how our budget works. We have a mandatory spending section of our budget, and we have a non-mandatory spending section of our budget. What's in non-mandatory? Department of Education, Parks and Wildlife, those type of things. Such as why, if you remember back when Obama first shut down the government, back under the Obama administration, do you remember all the hoopla over the fact that people couldn't go to a national park? It was like terrible. It's all over the media. People being locked out of national parks. They can't go see Yogi Bear. Terrible. You know, they show pictures of the, of, the, of the entrance to the park, and there'd be like a, a bench with a lock on it because <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't, had to keep you locked out, right? It's terrible. I know. Yogi and Boo Boo got no treats at all. So, that's, but see, National Parks and Wildlife, that's non-mandatory spending. What did get paid during the shutdown? Social Security. Military. They get paid. That's mandatory. So mandatory means it doesn't matter what happens, that gets paid. Non-mandatory is stuff that doesn't get paid. Department of Education. May not be the worst thing in the world to shut that puppy down for a while. Teachers all around the country go, oh, no, what are we going to do? Teach class. <laughs> they don't really do a lot for you. I know, homeschool. It's, it's, it's a thing. Uh, anyway, but this is, this is important to understand. So, yes, we could have a technical default on our debt. Nobody's going to freak out about it. Everybody knows they're going to get paid as soon as we get this, this passed. But does that cause interest rates to spike up in the short term? Absolutely. Bond traders are repositioning themselves. Right now, we're seeing the short end come up. We're seeing uh, the yield curve flatten here. We're seeing treasury yield spike up here a bit. So, you know, again, not surprising at all over this whole debate in the market about what's going on and, and traders trying to reposition themselves. At the same time, you got this inflationary pressure coming in. Yields are trying to adjust for inflation. So you got a lot of stuff that's going on here. Got the Fed talking about taper. So there's a lot of things pushing on yields right now, but... Again, yields are getting very overbought here on a short-term basis. And as I said earlier uh, in the show, it's like this has turned out every time since 2013. We've had spikes in yields. It's been a great bond-buying opportunity. Is this time different? Maybe. But given the reality that markets are grossly extended, overvalued, you've got the Fed about to start tapering. And typically, when the Fed tapers, that's great for bond yields. Why? Because it's a risk-off scenario. In other words, as the Fed starts to taper, people start taking their risk off pre the risk-on preference and shifting it to risk-off preference, which is buying bonds. Is this going to be different this time? Sure, anything is possible. But more than likely, it won't be. We'll come back after the break. Don't go away. One of the things that we that we talk about a lot on the show is about making good financial decisions and you know investing the right way. And when we talk about investing, the important we discussed this a little bit yesterday, talking about absolute versus relative returns, and that's that's an important concept to understand. You know, versus chasing some benchmark index. 
there's a vast difference between average returns and real returns, what you actually wind up with, and particularly when you're doing financial planning, et cetera. But, you know, one of the interesting things, I'm writing an article on this right now, is that if you look at, there was a, a, you know, we'll just start back here. There was a recent article out from Fidelity, a recent study, talking about there are now a record number of 401k millionaires, right? Record number, 429,000 millionaires that in the in retirement plans and of all the retirement plans they account for right four hundred thousand that sounds like a lot that's a lot of people that have over a million dollars in retirement that's awesome problem is is that a million dollars in retirement doesn't really cover that much anymore million dollars back in 1980 i could invest that at 10 11 12 13 percent interest in bonds make 100 120 a year no big deal four percent withdrawal rule no problem with yields at $1.5 million gets me $15,000 a year to live on. Big story difference. And this is why investors are having to be forced into equity risk, which is very dangerous going into retirement because once you're in retirement, great, equities are doing great, but a 30 or 40% drawdown in the markets will seriously impede your ability to withdraw capital over the long term. And a million dollars just simply isn't going to last as long as you think it is, not in this environment. But this is why when you take a look at those 400,000, right, how many people are that actually, right? That's about 1.6% of all the 401k plans that Fidelity actually manages. So in other words, the top 1% have a million dollars in their retirement plans. What about the other 99%? Or that's 1.6. So let's call it the other 98%. Average balances in those accounts are about one year's worth of income. You know, and so the problem always comes back to the fact that we just don't teach people well about financials, uh, finances, period, right? We just, we don't. We, we talked about this yesterday. We, you know, we don't teach this in school. We don't educate people. But what we do a very good job at, and this is a great thing about social media, television, et cetera, everything we're bombarded with every day, right? Every time you're on social media, you're scrolling social media, and every other scroll is an ad for you to buy something. And, you know, we've talked about on the show before is, my wife and I were out talking the other day and we're sitting on our back porch. We have our phones with us talking on the back porch about, you know, we need to get a bench for the, for the backyard. And next thing we know, we're getting ads on Amazon for, you know, backyard benches, right? Just, you know, that's stuff that kind of happens. Don't know how it happens. It just kind of happens. But, you know, we're constantly bombarded with these advertisements to buy this stuff. And as compulsive individuals that we are as Americans, we tend to do that. We know we should save. You know, and the biggest problem for individuals is everybody knows they should save money. And we do it backwards, right? We get paid, we go spend all our money, and then we go, well, we should probably try to save some money, right? And, and there's some simple rules for combating that. But, you know, as individuals, we're just constantly bombarded by these ideas of, of paying for, of buying stuff, right? We've just got to buy stuff. 70% of the economy is driven by consumption. That's what you and I buy every day. And we're not talking about just gas, food, cost of living, clothes. And we're talking about all of the crap we buy. <laughs> you know, you know go, through, go through your credit card bills and look at all the random stuff you bought. <laughs> and that's what we call leakage in the financial planning world, right? 
you got a lot of leakage. You know, there's $5 Starbucks, et cetera. You got a lot of leakage going on within your, within your spending. But, you know, the credit card companies, the finance companies, the, the you know, Wall Street companies, they, they make it as easy as possible for you to spend more money. Uh, MasterCard is now, and this has been, this is the new rising trend as of late. Now, this is something that millennials and Gen Zers are taking on hand over fist. MasterCard's now entering into this whole now buy now, pay later program. And we're seeing a lot of companies do this. There's been a couple acquisitions lately of these buy now, pay later type companies. And you're going, well, in the credit card, buy now, pay later? Yeah, it is. This is but this is even more. Even more, because now we can buy it now and pay it a little later, right? MasterCard announced an installment program for U.S. and Australian and U.K. markets on Tuesday. Buy now and pay later has become the battleground between banks and fintechs with the firm Amazon Square and major Wall Street banks competing to issue installment loans. These increasingly popular loans let buyers split up purchases through monthly, often interest-free payments. They're interest-free for a little while until you miss your first payment. And then you get hit. Remember, there is no free lunch in life. There's nothing for free. You're either overpaying for it up front or you're paying for it on the back end, but somebody's making money somewhere and they're making it off of you. But we're seeing more and more people charge groceries on their credit cards. We're seeing more and more people go further into debt. In fact, we just, had, we just uh, did some analysis on consumer credit now at a new record high. Individuals are taking on, especially young individuals, Gen Z and millennials, are taking on personal debt to invest in the markets. Taking out personal loans, taking out bank loans, taking out credit card loans. This ends very badly for them at some point. But again, this is just the function of debt. And we talk about this and it, and it seems fine. But then when we come back and look at these stats, right, we got 1.6 million, uh, sorry, 1.6% of the population have a million dollars in the bank. And we've got the other 98% of the country that is barely making ends meet. They have about one year salary saved up at best <laughs> for most people. A lot of them have none. 38% of young individuals have absolutely nothing saved for retirement. Zero, nada, zilch. Almost 20% of boomers have nothing saved for retirement at all. But yet we keep providing people more and more ways to spend money to have things today that they can pay for tomorrow. But there's a consequence for that. And I, and I find it interesting because in the midst of this entire reality, you know, we've got the Democrats that are trying to pass this three and a half trillion dollar social infrastructure bill. We need to give people more money to spend because, well, the economy's just not working for everybody. It's only working for the rich people. The economy works for everybody. It's just there's a group of people that tend to spend less than they make. They tend to save money. They tend to invest. They tend to do these things. And they build wealth for themselves. They go out and they start a business. They, they take advantage of the capitalistic economy. Then you've got a whole other group of people that simply succumb to the 
mental brainwashing of American media and spend literally everything they have plus more to live a lifestyle they really can't afford. You know, we have to have a three-bedroom house with a pool in the backyard and you know, the house has to be at least $300,000. You take a look at the houses that are being sold, right? Uh, the Census Bureau breaks down houses by incomes, right? By I'm sorry, uh, by prices, right? So $150,000 or less, $150,000 to $300,000, so on and so up. How many houses do you think are getting sold in this major housing boom that we have going on right now below $150,000? Almost none. Nobody wants to live in a $150,000 house. Are you kidding me? The dive. I need at least a two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 house if I'm going to buy a house to live in. I mean, come on. I need at least 3,000 square feet, whatever, right? But see, I can afford that, I think, because interest rates are low. And so my real estate agent tells me, like, why do you want to buy a $150,000 piece of crap when you can buy this $300,000 McMansion? And we can get you into it for just a low, low monthly income of just you know $1,000 a month or whatever it is, right? We spend more on housing in the U.S. than just about any other country in the world. In, in the U.S., we spend about 25% to 30% of our incomes on housing. We spend about 2% on education. China, they spend about 2 to 5% on real estate on their housing. Right, they spend a lot. They they invest a lot into real estate, but they spend about two to five percent on housing. They spend about twenty percent on education. Why do you think they're kicking our butt? You know, these all these ideas sound great, right? Buy now, pay later. Do this, do that. You know, you don't don't worry about paying. Take your family to Disney World, right? Put it on credit. It's all good. But then we come back and we keep asking ourselves, well, I don't understand why the economy is not working for everybody. The economy is working just fine. We just have a lot of people that have no concept about what they're doing to themselves because they want to live a lifestyle today that, well, they really can't afford. You know, I do agree with Dave Ramsey on this one point. Live like nobody else today so you can live like nobody else tomorrow. It's not a bad motto. Be right back after the break. So just talking a little bit about this whole idea of, you know, spending and figuring out new ways that I can buy now and pay later. And again, it sounds great, right? But, you know, finance companies are pretty smart about this stuff. And this is why they make billions of dollars in revenue because they know that, A, people will default, et cetera. So if I give you interest-free payments today, you're either going to overpay for it up front or you're going to pay for it on the back end when you miss payments. But, you know, the, the math is pretty simplistic. And, you know, talking about this whole idea of the economy is not working for everybody. And this, is, and this is one of the other misguided things that's going on right now. There is a petition running right now, petition.org, that is nearing almost 3 million signatures. And that's a petition wanting $2,000 a month in government stimulus forever. So in other words, $2,000 checks every month to households forever. Sounds great. Extremely misguided, though. Why? Because it only works for one year. What do you mean, Lance? Why would it only work for one year? If I'm getting an extra $2,000 a month every month, you know, that's great, right? 
why even work, right? I'm just getting two grand a month. Why even go to work? I'll just kind of do what I want. It works for one year. Why does it only work for one year? Because once you stick $2,000 a month into households, in the first 12 months, everybody will go out and they will spend their $2,000 a month. Who realizes that people now have an extra $2,000 a month? Everybody's selling you product. So if I have a business that is consumer driven, what do I do with prices? You got extra money. I'm going to raise my prices. There was a great lesson we should have learned from, from uh, college universities. When the government took over student loan debt and we watched government uh, uh, college tuition skyrocket through the roof, we should have picked up on the clue right there that, hey, giving people money without any responsibility is probably not a great idea. Because colleges go, hey, government's going to fund your tuition? <laughs> I got this. And college tuition soared. If you give individuals $2,000 a month, it sounds great. And for the first year, everybody's going to be very happy. But prices are going to go up. So this is the simple math of how this works. Let's assume the economy is at zero. Okay, and I give everybody $2,000 a month. At the end of year one, I'm going to have a 100% increase in the economy because everybody's going to go spend their $2,000 a month. Next year, and assuming no other incomes, right? We're just a very simple example here. Okay. So I give everybody $2,000 a month. They all go spend all $2,000. My economy is going to go from zero to 100% growth in the first year, right? Whatever that total number is. $5 trillion, whatever it, whatever it is, I've now got a $5 trillion economy. The next year, I give everybody $2,000 a month again. They all spend it. My economic growth at the end of year two is zero. Because I'm spending the same amount of money, I'm not spending any more money. So $2,000 a month sounds great until all the businesses go, hey, you've got an extra $2,000 a month. I'm just going to raise my prices. So hmm, there you go. And all of a sudden, that $2,000 a month gets absorbed into inflation and the cost of living. And next year, guess what? You are right back to where you started again. And the economy is not growing. And now you're going deeper and deeper into debt to supply this $2,000 a month to individuals. And if you think the economy is not working for these individuals now, you just wait until you give them $2,000 a month. The economy really won't work for them. You know, there's an old saying is that, you know, socialism is great until you run out of other people's money. And that's the problem. It'll be great for one year. And this is the lack of, of education, right? That we don't give average Americans. We don't teach basic economics to individuals. We don't teach basic finance to individuals. We, I don't know what we teach them, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I, I'm a, history's great, you know. It's good that we teach them English, although they don't use it. Um you know, but the important things, I think we're kind of missing some of the important things that we should be teaching our, our youth and individual coming up. But uh, we, we typically, 
I guess, missed that. But this idea of $2,000 a month, it sounds great. Look, this is we're in that moment in time where we are watching the world turn socialistic. Angela Merkel, her conservative party just lost out to social Democrats. They've got big problems in Germany. We're doing everything we can to be as socialistic as possible, as soon as possible here in the U.S. And people like this idea because under socialism, I get free stuff. But that's not really what you want. You don't really want free stuff because once you start getting free stuff, the free stuff costs you a whole lot more than when you were paying for it and earning it. And unfortunately, throughout history, these things don't work well. They don't work well for anyone. And if you think there's a wealth gap now, wait until you turn socialistic entirely. The whole reason that those in power want socialism is because it makes them more wealthy and more powerful. Socialism is great for those at the top. It sucks for everybody else. But these, but we don't tell people this, right? People don't read history. They don't really study history. They don't look back at countries that have been socialistic in the past. Why do you think there's people that try to flock here from all over the world, particularly from countries like Russia, China, um, and other, uh, other socialistic countries? Why do you think they're trying to get here? You know, the U.S. was the first and only experiment in freedom. We gave people freedoms under the Constitution. We said, go forth, be free, and prosper. And the American experiment was the most successful experiment of government management in the entirety of world history. And we're not talking about wealth in the U.S. being just a little bit better than that in the rest of the world. We're talking about wealth in America being head and shoulders above that of anywhere else in the world. You earn $30,000 a year in the United States. You go, man, my life sucks. I'm barely getting by. But $30,000 U.S. is in the top 1% of income earners for everybody else in the world. Why do you think people that expatriate from the U.S. go to other countries with their money? Because the cost of living is exceptionally cheap in other countries. I mean, you can hire an entire house of, of, of maid staff for like 100 bucks a month. And they're happy to have it. You think income inequality in the U.S. is bad? Go to other countries. You think healthcare in the U.S. is bad? Go live in other countries. I've done it, right? I've been there. I speak from experience, not from assumption. You have the greatest opportunity ever in America right now to build back better, right? Using the capitalistic process. But you're voting to destroy that process. And what you're voting for is not going to build back better. It will build back socialistic, which is throughout history, the worst of possible outcomes. Again, we, you know, as a boomer, I'm not sure I care. I'm not going to be around long enough to worry about it. For Gen Zs and millennials, you need to be careful what you're voting for. You get the government you vote for.
and you get the outcomes you vote for. And, and voting for things like $2,000 a month, it sounds great, but it doesn't work. And again, just basic economics, basic math will tell you that it won't work. We just have to do the work. And again, we have this great opportunity to participate in the American experiment while it's still alive. And you have the opportunity to make a lot of money with it. You just have to be willing to go out there and take the risk. And you've got to go out and do it every single day. And guess what? You're going to fail. There was a great line the other day. Michael Jordan took 946 game-winning shots during his career. I mean, we're talking about at the buzzer, game-winning shots. 946 of them. He only made like 145 of them. He failed way more than he ever succeeded. But he was the greatest basketball player ever, right? This is the point of American exceptionalism. This is the point of capitalism is that you have the ability to go out and succeed. You may fail a few times, but you've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. You've got to do it again. And things don't always work out, but that's okay because every time you fail, you're one step closer to success. And we envy those that succeed, right? We go, wow, look at, look at, you know, Mr. Jones. He was an overnight success. Yeah. It only took him about 20 years to get there, but yeah, he's very wealthy now. There's probably not one businessman that you will talk to that is successful. You go, go mentor yourself with somebody who's successful. And almost every one of them have either filed for bankruptcy at one point or the other, lived on the street at one point or the other, I mean, have basically been broke at one point or the other, and probably more than once before they actually succeeded. But that's the difference. That's what capitalism gives you. It gives you the ability to fail and to succeed. Socialism doesn't. It just creates failure for everybody. Wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow, of course, for Wednesday's edition. Danny Ratliff joining me in the morning. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, our new blog post is out talking about is the market melting up? That's on the website now, along with all of our other articles. Our daily commentary is out as well talking about the yield spike, what's going on. That's on our website right now as well. You can subscribe for that free daily delivery right to your email address, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.